Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession, who are zealous for good works. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that this morning you will make your doctrine warm to our heart, that we would love it, that we would see what you have for your people, and that it would change us, that you would season our lives with this doctrine, that we would reflect it. Please be with me now as I preach. Please preach through me. Please protect the words that I speak. Keep me from straying to the left or to the right of your truth. In your truth, we rest. And in your power, we rest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, we were taught uh, from the book of Matthew. We were taught to love the law and to keep it from the heart. And this week's text is going to go hand in hand with that. And um, sort of the, the short application of this is doctrine should drive our heart. And doctrine does drive our heart. Um, Everyone has doctrine. It may not be good doctrine, but we all live by doctrines. What are doctrines? These are teachings. These are precepts, principles that we live our lives on. And so what we are considering this morning is the doctrine of Christ. Paul lays out doctrine for the people all the time. He often lays out a doctrine and then follows it with This is how you should live. Your life should be an outpouring of this doctrine. Or when he corrects people, he says, your lives are out of step with this doctrine. And that's that's what he does for us in Titus. He goes through and he lists people in all stations of life, whether they are slaves, whether they are husbands, whether they are wives, whether they are old, whether they are young, how should they be living? And then he follows it with the doctrine that is the basis, the grounds for their lives. So this is what Paul does for our good. It's a logical progression that Paul uses. If this is the truth, then your life, and you believe this, then your life should be reflecting this. So good doctrine for us functions like a rudder or an anchor. A rudder, like on a ship, steers the ship, tells it where to go. An anchor on a ship keeps the ship from going when you don't want it to go. And there are many doctrines around us that are not this doctrine. So the truth of this doctrine is stable. It does not change with the winds that are around us. So in that sense, this doctrine is our anchor. But we do not live stagnant lives. We do not sit still. So as we move through this life, our doctrine is our rudder that guides us and helps us to navigate. So my exhortation this morning, I'll probably say this several times, is rather wordy. I had a shorter one, which was live in light of grace, but I really wanted to highlight doctrine. Uh, Doctrine is not a cold thing. Doctrine is not just for a theological egghead, but doctrine is for every one of us. We all need to hold to good doctrine. 
So the main point this morning is, as we live in an unbelieving age, we must keep this doctrine close to our hearts. And the importance of doctrine is all through Paul's letters, and it's all through just this book of Titus. Just to show you, the entire book of Titus fits right here on my Bible. I don't even have to, to turn the page. I can see the entire book. And, and it's threaded through this entire book several times. And chapter 1, he tells us the importance of doctrine to help us to hold firm to the trustworthy word and rebuke what is not true teaching. There was a lot of false teaching, a lot of mythology getting mixed in with the believers. And Paul is addressing this. He is saying, hold on to the truth and rebuke what is not the truth. And in chapter 2, he says, teach what accords with good doctrine. What is in line with good doctrine? Teach these things. Declare these things. Let no one disregard you as you teach these things. And then in chapter 3, he says that the doctrine of Christ is good, worthy, I mean, is trustworthy and good. I want you to insist upon this doctrine to the people. And then he says, so that the people will devote themselves to good works. We'll contrast that to chapter 1, where he talks about false doctrine. He says, and these people are unfit for good works. So false doctrine, unfit for good works. Good doctrine is fit for good works. So that's sort of the setting of doctrine in the text. Uh, just really want to highlight that. Uh, and that doctrine should be something we love. Doctrine should be something that we hold close to our hearts. And we're going to take a look at that doctrine this morning. We're going to walk through the text and we're going to see the different aspects of this doctrine. This doctrine speaks to a past reality. This doctrine speaks to a present reality. And this doctrine speaks to a future reality. This doctrine has passed in that Christ has redeemed the Christian. This is something that he has done for you. If you are a believer in Christ, there is a past tense reality to our doctrine. And that is Christ's work is accomplished. His redemption is accomplished in you. So we call that justification. I'm going to use a few churchy words this morning. Justification, sanctification, and consummation. And we're going to view these in three lights. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. So justification for the believer. That's past tense. This has happened. You have been made justified by Christ's work. And that's something that's in our doctrine this morning. Sanctification. That's something that's present tense. Christ is working in your lives. He is teaching you. He is training you for good works. He's making a people zealous for good works. Present tense. And consummation. Christ will come again. He will bring this age to an end. And we will see all things made as they should be. That's future tense. So past tense, present tense, and future tense. So Paul's message. This message is a message to Titus. He, he is telling Titus how to put things in order in this church. He gives qualifications for elders, and now he gives instructions for people in all walks of life in chapter 2. The text preceding the text I read earlier, he walks through people in all walks of life. And tells them how to live in godliness where they are in the things that they do on a regular basis. And then he gives them the grounds for our lives. And that's the doctrine we are considering this morning. So whether you are at home, whether you are at work, 
whether you out, you're out at Fred Meyer's in public, this is the doctrine for your life. The verse preceding what I read was verse 10. I, I want to go back and read that. It says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And pay attention to this part. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Father. What does that mean to adorn the doctrine of God our Father? Adorn is a word we do not use too often. You may adorn jewelry to beautify yourself, maybe. You adorn a crown if you're royalty. That would be fitting, right? That the appropriate adornment for um, a royal person would be a crown. And the appropriate adornment for the Christian is this doctrine. We should be seasoned. We should be cloaked with this doctrine. When people see us, it should, should reflect the doctrine of Christ. And the ways you see that would be the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Peacefulness, patience, kindness. Are we more prone to outbursts of anger? Are we peaceful people? Do we reflect the love of Christ? Are we holy people? Are we engaging in sinful activity, or do we see it the way Christ does? So what adorned your last week? Was it frustration and patience as you were driving in traffic? Was it envy over good news for someone else? Was it gossip? Was it useless arguments that really didn't matter? Or was it gentleness? Was it kindness, self-control, peacefulness? Contentment. Our doctrine should bring those things out in us. So Paul lays out this doctrine that should drive us. And we should live in an unbelieving age, holding close to this doctrine. In an unbelieving age that does not believe this doctrine, we are being steeped in other beliefs. We are being flavored by these other beliefs. It's, it's unavoidable. When you go into the world, you are brushing up against things that are not this doctrine. So we keep this doctrine close to our hearts. And in your, if you have your bulletin, I have three aspects that we're going to look at. I, I went through them as justification, sanctification, and consummation, but this may be more helpful for you. So let's walk through it and look at these points. Continuing to marvel at Christ's appearing. So in our text, this word appearing pops up twice. The first appearing is in grace and then later and in glory. But let's look at Christ's appearing in grace. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let's pause there. For the grace of God has appeared. Is this something that we marvel at? What does this even mean? The grace of God has appeared. This is Christ appearing in the world. The grace of God here is personified in Christ. He is the grace of God stepping into our age to redeem us. This is a marvelous thing. Continue to marvel at his appearing. And I, I put this word continuing there on purpose. I... This is something you may do early on in your Christian life. This may be fresh, and you marvel at this truth. How could God become man? 
How could God redeem sinful man who hates his law? This is marvelous. What does that word marvel even mean? We, uh, we think of Marvel Comics, right? You're familiar? If you Google Marvel, that's the first thing that's going to come up. It's not going to be a definition of the word Marvel. It's going to be something about Marvel Comics. That's the most common use for that word. But where did that even come from? Well, these characters, they're marvelous, right? They do special things. They're powerful. They are unusual. So, so they named this whole comic series after that aspect, marveling at these achievements. Let's not lose sight of what a glorious thing our Lord has done. Let's marvel at that. But even our vocabulary becomes muted, right? We throw these words around. Awesome. We, we, um, uh, a student does well on their assignment and you say, awesome job, right? We use awesome in our vocabulary uh, so flippantly. And so we become numb to it. I, I used to watch a TV show called Chuck, and there was a guy named Captain Awesome on the show. Everything was awesome. Anything that happened, just awesome. He's just, um, that's an awesome shirt. You know, that's an awesome iPhone on the stand there. Everything was awesome. And his wife gets frustrated with him at one point, and she says, well, if everything is awesome, then awesome by nature is mediocre. And so we become numb. We become numb to these things. So um, we need to realize that we are well acquainted with the Lord and his awesomeness is ever before us and we become numb to this reality. We need to keep that fresh so we continue to marvel at his appearing. Is there a sense of wonder that God our Savior stepped into this era, becomes a man and all of the things that come with that? In our catechism this morning, we talked about the humiliation of Christ. He was born a man. He's made subject to the law. He experiences the miseries of life. He experiences the wrath of God. He is cursed and experiences death on the cross. For a time, he has submitted to the power of death. This is marvelous. This is our God doing these things. This is our God experiencing humiliation. And all of this to redeem for himself a people. Do we marvel at that? Not just his death. Even his birth is a sacrifice. God steps into flesh. Redeeming those who by their very nature hate his law. These are his enemies. Yet he makes us his people. Mm-hmm. Titus chapter 3 says that the goodness and the loving kindness appears and saves us, washes us, renews us, and makes us heirs with him. That's the nature of his appearing. He appears in grace, and this is goodness and loving kindness that washes us, saves us, renews us, gives us a place, making us his people, gives us an inheritance. This is a big deal, and it's truly awesome, and it should captivate us, and it should motivate us in our lives. How can we not be changed by that reality? So the long-awaited Messiah has appeared. Where is our sense of wonder for that? And he appears in grace. What a miracle that is, because we know when he appears again, he will appear in judgment. Thank God that this appearance was an appearance of grace. 
So this crucifixion and resurrection, those are reasons to marvel. I mean, who can even lay down their life and take it up again? Which Jesus boldly claims before he ever does it, that he will do this. Um, this is the one who brings salvation. The one who has the real power. And he brings salvation to all people. And just a point of clarity on that, when it says all people there, this is not a universalist text. This does not mean that all people will be saved in the sense of every individual. This is all peoples will be saved. This is people of every tribe and nation. This is people of every walk of life saved, but not every individual. And this is the nature of the people that he is bringing. Jew and Gentile, all of these are now his and he makes these people his own. Do we marvel at that? Do we marvel at the things that he has promised to do? The, the promises of Genesis. Genesis 3, our Savior has come into the world to crush the serpent. The promises in the Exodus that I will make a people for myself. This is what he's doing. He's doing it here. God condescended and he paid our debt. And he claims us as his own. And he's begun a work of salvation in you. If you are his, he has redeemed you. And that's marvelous. And what's even more marvelous is that he will not just leave you at that. Do you expect God's work to be fruitless? If he's already begun a work, will he not complete that work? Which brings us to the next point. We marvel at Christ's appearing, and then we can... Continue in submitting to Christ's teaching. That may be easy when you first become a Christian and everything's fresh. So I added that word, continue to submit. We can submit for a time, but can we continue in it? Christ's death and resurrection are intended to have their full effect in the believer. I, I stole that from Calvin. Um, John Calvin said that first. But... Think about that. His death and resurrection are not intended to simply redeem you, but they are intended to have their full effect. And that means sanctification. He doesn't just bring us salvation to justify us. He refines us. He sanctifies us as we live in this age. In this age, we will struggle. We will have ups and downs. So as we live in this unbelieving age, we keep the doctrine of Christ close to us. And we are reminded that he is with us and that he is refining us. Let's again return to the text. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He is teaching us, and this is the present tense. He's teaching us to deny and he is teaching us to live. He is teaching us to deny the things that are not of him and to live for the things that are him. He has redeemed us so that we can deny the things that we are redeemed from and that we can live the life that we were redeemed for. I'm going to repeat that. He wants, well, he works in us now that we will deny the things that we were redeemed from and live the life that we were redeemed for. And what was that? What is that life that we are redeemed for? If we jump ahead in our text, 
waiting for the blessed hope and in the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. He redeemed us so that we would be his. He redeemed us so that we would be zealous for good, zealous for good works, excited to do good. This is not a burden to do good works for the Christian. This is a joy. We love what is good, and we hate what is evil. And that's hard. We live in, an, in a world who rejoices over evil and hates good. So we are aliens here. We are strangers. We are going against the grain, and it is exhausting. It is hard. But we have the law written on our hearts. We touched on that last week. And the law is written on our hearts by Christ, by the Holy Spirit working in the believer. We are brought into line with the law. We love the law, the law which shows us our need for Christ. We call it a tutor to Christ. In other words, it is our teacher. The law teaches us our need of Christ. And now Christ teaches us the law. That's a beautiful thing, believer. Before, when we had the law, the best we could do was like paint by numbers. You apply the law the best you can to your life. Just like in paint by numbers, it tells you what color to paint and what block. And then when you're done, you have this thing that sort of resembles a painting. But when Christ is your tutor in the law and is teaching you the law, You are no longer painting by numbers and doing your best attempts to keep the law. But now the law is kept from the heart. The Lord has shared with us his heart. The Lord is the one who knows how the law works. And so now we no longer paint by numbers and like the Pharisees and scribes do our best to keep the law and miss the mark. But instead... The shadows of the law are removed, and we understand it in a way we did not before. We are able to keep it in a way we were not before. Does this mean you are perfect? No, it does not mean you are perfect. We still 100% rely on the grace of the Lord. So as we live in this world, this doctrine is our rudder. It is steering us. How do we navigate difficult situations. How do we navigate difficult people? We're told to be gentle. We're told to be courteous with people because we too were once foolish. We too were once like them. And we hold on to the doctrine as our anchor because it does not change even though our environment changes constantly. The doctrines of the people around us change constantly. There are different virtues every season, different things that that are the ultimate thing to the world around us. Uh, It's not that the world doesn't have values, but the world has values that change constantly. And the Lord's values never change. Uh, Years ago, I went to Ripley's Believe It or Not, and they had an exhibit, and there was a tunnel in this exhibit that had spiraling lines, and it was a sensory deprivation tunnel. And as you went through it, you're, you were bombarded. And the, the idea was, as you walked through it, you could no longer tell which direction was up, 
and which direction was down. And from the outside looking in, you could see people step in and they would start to, to lean like this. And, um, and they would tumble and they would, um, they would fall down. And I'm standing in line waiting to walk through it. And as I see these people going through, I decide, I think I can, I can not fall down if I just look all the way at the end of the tunnel because it's not moving down there. And so I did that. I just stared as straight as I could. I didn't really get the effect of the exhibit. That wasn't the point of the exhibit. <laughs> but but I, I made it through without falling because I, I stared at the end because it didn't move. And that's our doctrine. Our doctrine doesn't change. It can get confusing out there. Yes. Um, we can start to doubt what is right. But the scripture does not change. So Paul tells so tells Titus to encourage the people, teach these things, insist on these things. They are trustworthy. They are true. We desperately need to know what is trustworthy and what is true. This world doesn't know what is true. We think we do. We think we have it figured out until next year when things change, and then we think we have it figured out again. The scripture doesn't change. So my encouragement is, as you believe in this age, as you live in this unbelieving age, sorry, keep this doctrine close to your heart. Grow in your affection for the scripture, for the truth contained in the scripture, because it is your lifeline. And last, as we look at this, consider this, that submission requires faith. As we submit to the teachings of Christ, we have to have faith in his law. And what does he teach us? He teaches us to love his law. And when he summed up the commandments, how did he sum them up? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. So what what was he doing? He was condensing those commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, the first table and the second table of the commands. And, uh, And so as we look at the characteristics here, be kind and submissive, uh, not slanderers, uh, do what is good, be self-controlled, dignified. All of these things are in line with those commands. And to submit to this, we have to have faith that those commands are for our good, that those commands are indeed good. And faith clings to the promises of God. So submission requires faith. Faith clings to the promises of God. And hope sustains faith. I also stole that from John Calvin. Um, So our last point is continuing in the hope of Christ's return. So the text starts off with the appearing of Christ in grace. And then it mentions another appearing, an appearing in glory. So we live godly lives in this present age, waiting, verse 13, for the glory waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us. That's the one that we wait for. That is the one that we hope for. The one who came in grace and is coming again in glory. Note first that he mentions this present age. This is a time where we endure. This is a time when we rely on hope. Hope sustains us as we endure. So Paul gives us this hope. He reminds the believer, Christ is coming again, just as he came once, just as sure as this appearing in grace is, 
so too is his appearing in glory. Consider a runner who runs a race. That analogy of runner is in scripture as well. And he needs to endure. If you were running and you did not have an end in sight, it becomes very hard to continue on. But when you are running and you know that the end is coming and each step you take is bringing you closer to that end, you have hope. You are encouraged as you go along because you know what is coming and you know that it is certain. You know that there is an end to that race. And it's the same here. We endure in this age because we know that there is an end to this age. All of our lives are finite. And on top of that, we know that Christ is coming again to make all things new, to make all things right. But we are tired in this age. We're tired of the stench of death. We're tired of a world that does what is right in their own mind. We're studying the book of Judges in Sunday school, and, um, and that is that is sort of a theme of Judges, that the people are doing what is right in their own mind, and the book ends that way, and it's probably one of the most ominous endings of a book in Scripture, the people doing what's right in their own minds. And that is the age we live in. People do what is right in their own minds. We need hope. So our text refers to these two certain appearings, one in grace and one in glory. And there's an accountability built into that for the believer. Just as he appeared once, he is appearing again. Consider that like you were at work and you know your boss is coming. Are you going to have your feet kicked up on the desk? Are you going to be checking Facebook? Are you going to be working knowing that at any point in time your boss could come back? There's accountability with knowing that the Savior comes again. How will he find you when he returns, right? Um, that should prompt us. Will he find us with our feet kicked up, checking Facebook? Will he find us busy about good works? Will he find us loving those around us, representing him well to our neighbors? Most of the objections I hear about Christianity are not about our doctrine. They're about our people. It's about the way we live, the way we represent Christ. We are a poor reflection of this doctrine. And Paul even points that out here. He says, give your, give your opponents no reason to hate this doctrine. Don't give them ammunition. And in our lives, as we hope in the, in the Savior's return, we reflect him to this world. Consider that. Put to death the old ways, because we are united with him in all things. If you have your Bible, uh, if you turn back a few pages to Colossians, it'll be before all of the books that start with T. Uh, so Colossians chapter 3. Consider how we are united to Christ as I read these verses. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is. This is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also be with him. You will also appear with him in glory. We are united with Christ. We are united with him in our life. We are united with him in his death. 
And in here, in verse 4, he says a remarkable thing. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Consider that. We hope in Christ's return because we will be present with him in this. That is a mystery. That is remarkable. And that is something that we probably think sounds wrong. How can I be with him in his glory, in his appearing in glory? This just doesn't seem fitting, right? We are not worthy of such an honor. Like, how could this be? And that's, that's true, but we also are not worthy of his first appearing. We were not worthy of the appearing in grace, just as we are not worthy of the appearing in glory. But that's why it was an appearance in grace, right? What is grace? It's unmerited, unmerited favor. And, and his appearing in glory is also unmerited, that we would be so graciously grafted, united to Christ in this. So again, we marvel, and we submit to him, and we hope in him. We will all be there with him in, in his glory. That's not an abstract doctrine. That is a motive. That is uh, a captivation of the soul of our soul, that to know these things. This is the truth of what has been for the believer. This is the truth of what is now for the believer. And this is the truth of what will be. We are united to Christ in his perfect fulfillment of the law, which redeems us. And he writes his law on our hearts. He teaches us. So it is fitting that our lives would reflect that work. So Paul says to the people, Adorn the doctrine with your life. So in the midst of the chaos of this age, we must keep the doctrine of Christ close to our hearts. His doctrine is stable. It is true. Marvel at the one who came in grace. Submit to his teaching and hope in his glorious return. Would you pray with me? Father, May the world see Christ when they see us. May our lives give the world around us no case against the gospel. May our lives be a fragrant offering. An offering to the one who came in grace. The one who comes in glory. Father, captivate us. Father, you made us your possession. Remind us of this every day. Help us to keep this close. In Christ we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.